If you could open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We are going through the Gospel of John, and in the last lesson we read through John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, and we discussed three questions that John was asked. And I want to go back to John chapter 1, reading verses 19 to 21. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Then he quoted from Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, in the last lesson, let's continue verse 24. It says, Now those who were sent uh, were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So this is the three questions. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And in the last lesson, we talked about are you the Christ? What that meant to them, what they had in mind when they asked it, and what the scriptures say in the Old Testament about the Christ that would come. So we're going to look at the, today we're going to look at are you Elijah and are you the prophet? I'm I'm, uh, planning to cover that at the end of this lesson as well. So we're going to cover the same scriptures but we're going to take it a little further. People were openly wondering whether John the Baptist was Elijah, but they also were asking whether Jesus was Elijah. Jesus was asked a couple of times in the Gospels, are you Elijah? Who are you? So, of all the prophets from the past, why Elijah? Why not Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel? Why would they be asking him if he was Elijah? What do you think? Uh, well, and that, that backs us up to another question. Who was Elijah and why was he so important? And from those who are familiar with the Old Testament, the life and ministry of Elijah are discussed in the books of First and Second Kings, or if you have a Septuagint Bible, it's called Third and Fourth Kingdoms, same book. Uh, he was a prophet who lived about 860 years before the time of Jesus, and he lived during the time of a very wicked king named Ahab and his even more wicked wife named Jezebel uh, in the northern kingdom in Israel. So this, was, this is during the time of the divided kingdom after, after Solomon. And a few things are noteworthy about Elijah. One was he had a rather distinctive appearance. He dressed like no one else did. He was famous for that. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah, who's the son of Ahab, has, has a bad accident And he sends out messengers to inquire of Baal to find out if he's going to recover. And Elijah intercepts these messengers and gives them some bad news to take back to the king. So they go back to the king and said, we ran into this guy who said that you're not going to recover. 
And so the king, uh, so in 2 Kings chapter uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, I'm going to read, read from there. It says, the, the, the king speaks to his messengers. He said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered, he was a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king replied, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So uh, I checked a few other translations. The, the hairy man part kind of, kind of uh, threw me there. And it, there were at least five other translations where it said instead of being a hairy man, he was wearing a coat of hair. So uh, wearing a garment of hair. So I guess it's not clear in the, to the translators whether the hair was homegrown or whether he, he purchased it or got it from somewhere else along the way. But uh, regardless... When somebody saw him, they saw the hair and they saw the belt. They, 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 nobody else dressed like this guy. So he was, he was, he was well known for the way that he, he dressed. Also, something very unusual about Elijah is that he didn't die, which is bizarre. But he's walking along with Elisha, his understudy, another prophet, and... Uh, chariots and horses of fire come down and he's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. So what do we make of that? He, he doesn't die, he's taken up into heaven. That's very unusual in 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, and he's also, Elijah was a man who was renowned for tremendous spiritual power. He lived in a time of great wickedness and he could raise the dead, he could change the weather, and, and in the New Testament, he's held up as a great example for us in terms of his faith and his prayer. This is a verse that we're probably familiar with. Let's turn to James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. So just, let's just try to get, get our minds into who was Elijah and why is Elijah significant. In James chapter 5, reading from the New King James Verses 16 to 18, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. A few weeks ago, we gave a lesson called, Does God Play Favorites? And I've gotten a lot of feedback from that lesson from, from people all over the place. It, it's, I'm, I'm, the the lesson, de lesson definitely resonated with people. And the, this, the subject of the lesson was, God actually does have favorites, and we get to choose whether we want to be among his favorites, those who really love him and obey him. And the bad news is, that the people who are God's favorites usually have to go through tremendous trials and difficulties and hardship. Mm -hmm. But there's another side to being God's favorite because Elijah here to me was an example of this. Elijah was a man who was hunted down in other countries by a wicked king. So he had to flee, but God protected him. He provided food for him. He even brought the birds to bring him bread and meat. He gave him a stream. He gave him a widow to take care of him. So God took, he was one of God's favorites and he was heavily persecuted and tested, but God took care of him. 
God, God took very good care of him. And it says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And he points us to the example of Elijah. And the implication is here, well, Elijah could do it. He was just a person like we are. He prayed and it stopped raining for three and a half years. And at his command, at his prayer, it, 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 and it, was, it was a fervent prayer and a repeated prayer, but it started raining again after three and a half years of drought. And that's the, that, it, we're pointed by James that that's the example of the kind of impact that the prayers of someone who really loves God and, and is devoted to righteousness like Elijah can have. So Elijah's hold up as a great example for us of, of righteousness and fervency and effectiveness in prayer. So back to my question, why were people expecting Elijah to return and what was the significance of that? Um, Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Now, in, in the Septuagint, I usually use the Septuagint for the Old Testament. The numbering is a little different, so I'm going to read the... Uh, it says the same thing uh, pretty much. I'm going to read from the, the, uh, the New King James here. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, the first few verses. We'll read verses 1 to 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the authoring of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And then from the last verses in Malachi, this is verses 5 and 6, or if you have a Septuagint, it's in Malachi 3, verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So, what do we learn from these two passages? God says he's going to send a messenger from the first passage that we read. And that messenger is referred to as Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah had been gone for hundreds of years at the time this was written. He was taken up in a chariot. So what do we do with that? Is the chariot going to come back down again and drop him off? And it says, The Lord will appear suddenly in his temple after this messenger appears. And the messenger Elijah will become before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, what's that? Is that the appearance of Jesus? Is that the second coming? Uh, Of course, there are two comings of Jesus that the scriptures talk about, his initial coming and then his second coming on the day of judgment. So I'm left with a bunch of questions. Is this talking about the first coming of Jesus 
the second coming of Jesus, or both of them. Uh, there are some things about John the Baptist that remind me of Elijah, and maybe, maybe you're thinking some of the same things. One of the things was he was a solitary figure who was out in the wilderness, boldly calling people to repent, even the king, and even calling out the personal sins of the king. Also, not only is he hated by a notoriously wicked king, but his even more wicked queen, who wants him dead. <clears throat> Elijah was hated by Ahab, and Jezebel swore to have him killed after he killed her prophets of Baal. John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod, but it was Herod's wife Herodias who conspired to have him beheaded in prison as talked about in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 14. And even their unusual appearance. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Gospel of Mark starts off with the story of John the Baptist. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 6, it says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So, there's only one other person I can think of in the Bible who's described that. The garment of hair and the leather belt around his waist. So, this is definitely makes me think of John the Baptist here. Even his appearance. So, the question we're left with, was John the Elijah who was to come. Well, John said, no. They asked John, are you Elijah? He said, no. There's no question about that. On the other hand, let's look and see what Jesus said about that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. And over the years, I've gotten many questions about this because on the face of it, it seems like is there, may, there may be a contradiction here. Let's explore this. Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13. Talking about Jesus, as his disciple asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And then before that, let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. That's, John, that's Jesus speaking to his disciples. And this is in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaking to the crowd. Starting in verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For he, this is he of whom it is written, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Obviously, he's quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We just read that. Let me continue. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, between these two passages, no question about it, Jesus says John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. He's the one that Malachi was speaking about. On the other hand, John the Baptist, when he's asked, are you Elijah, says no. What do we do with that? Is maybe John didn't know who he was? He, he believed he was the one who was filling, fulfilling what it said in Isaiah chapter 40, the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with this? I mean, I think for one thing, Jesus says he is the Elijah who is to come. The idea that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord, that explains to me why John the Baptist is mentioned so prominently in the beginning of all four Gospels. Luke starts off with the, with the birth of John the Baptist. Mark starts off with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. Matthew, after the story of the infancy of Jesus, talks about John the Baptist's ministry before Jesus. And, of course, John starts off with John the Baptist as well. So that's why the story starts with John the Baptist, because it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. So what do we do with this John the Baptist saying the... the, I'll tell you what the Muslims will do with it. The, The Muslims will say... Aha, there's another example of the inconsistencies and the corruption of the New Testament because Jesus said he was, John the Baptist said he wasn't. Obviously, someone changed the story and it was corrupted. Well, that's one possibility. Uh, let's let's uh, explore another one. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Let's get our answer from an angel here. We've already had Jesus weigh in on this. I want to get the word from an angel as well. Luke chapter 1 which, of course, starts off with the announcement of the, the, uh, the birth of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 13. So how do, we, how do we resolve this apparent contradiction? The angel appears to Zecharias, the father who, who, who would become the father of John the Baptist, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 4. And the disobedient of the wisdom to the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So 
What I notice here, he says he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So, putting all of this together, was John the Baptist literally Elijah, chariot come down to earth, Elijah gets off and continues his ministry? No, he wasn't Elijah. But he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So figuratively, he was the Elijah who was to come. Literally, he was not. Well, is Elijah going to be coming back in the future physically? Let's let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. About this coming of Elijah. Is there more to the story than that? We're going to read verses 1 to 11 in Revelation chapter 11. It's, it's a longish passage, but I think if we're going to touch on the question of Elijah and whether somebody was or wasn't Elijah, that this is it's important to talk about this. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of the God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, and I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Well, the reference to the two olive trees and the lampstand points back to Zechariah chapter 4. And the two witnesses, the description of the two witnesses here, that one of them has the power to shut up the shut, shut up the heavens during the time that he prophesies. Well, who would that be but Elijah? And one has the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with plagues anytime he wants Moses. to. Who would that exactly, Adam? Who would that be but Moses? So it sounds like Moses and Elijah are coming back. Some of the early Christians believe that it was Enoch and Elijah who would be coming back. But either way you look at it, it sounds like Elijah is coming back again before the dreadful day of the Lord, before the second coming. And this is how the early Christian readers saw this. They saw that John the Baptist was figuratively the Elijah who was to come. 
that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but that Elijah would come back again at the end, before the second coming of Jesus, that he would come personally. Which explains perhaps, first of all, why Elijah did not die in 2 Kings, why he was taken up to heaven. He's reserved for something else. And also why John the Baptist could say, honestly, no, I'm not Elijah. That Elijah will come back, but not yet. There's a, an interesting discussion of early Christian uh, attitudes about Elijah uh, in the uh, uh, Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. Uh, so I'll refer you there if you want to learn more about that. Second quest, the third question. So we looked at, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? He's not physically Elijah, but he's in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the third question, are you the prophet? This is an extremely important question right now. And I'll tell you why. There are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world right now, about a quarter of the world's population. Top four Muslim countries in the world aren't even in the Middle East. It's Indonesia, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. So there are these are all countries with over a hundred million Muslims in them. So 1.8 billion Muslims on the face of the earth. We also I lived in a Muslim country, Albania. Uh, years ago and got into some very interesting discussions. I, I read the Quran. We were reaching out to people from Muslim backgrounds there. So I learned quite a bit about what Muslims teach. And Muslims hold that John the Baptist was a true prophet of God. And when they look at these questions, uh, when they say, are you the Christ, that they'll say, yes, the Christ does refer to Jesus, but he's not God's son. They say God can't have a son. They'll stay, teach, say that he wasn't divine. They believe he was the Messiah and he will return on the last day. They don't believe he died on the cross, and they also don't believe that he rose from the dead. So when I point out to the, the Muslims, well, this is what the scriptures say. How can you believe these things but not these things? And the, the, the answer is always, well, the Christians changed the story after the facts. The scriptures were corrupted. Uh, the question about Elijah, I'm not sure what they believe about the connection between uh, John the Baptist and Elijah. But however, the question, are you the prophet? What they will say is, aha, John is asked, are you the Christ? And a separate question, are you the prophet? So the Muslims teach that the Christ would come, who is Jesus, but also that the prophet who would come, who they say is Muhammad. So that's their entree into explaining the coming, the prophecies about the coming of Muhammad. That Muhammad was the last ultimate prophet, according to them, who would come after the Christ and is separate from the Christ. So let's go back to this, this question, are you the prophet? Uh, John Chrysostom is a, a bishop of the church in, in uh, Constantinople in the, uh, in the uh, uh, late 300s, early 400s, and he was famous as a preacher, and he liked to preach, I like, like about uh, Chrysostom is he liked to preach through books of the Bible. So he would he preach through a Gospel of John, he preached through 1 Corinthians, but he just start at the beginning and he preached all the way through the, through the Gospel in a series of sermons. And uh, 
He said something about this passage as he was going through John. I'm going to read from what Chrysostom said in one of his sermons. He said, They expected some special prophet should come because Moses said, The Lord God will raise up a prophet from among your brethren, like unto me, him you shall heed, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And, he's, and, and Chrysostom says, Now this was Christ. Wherefore did they not say to John the Baptist, Are you a prophet? He says, Why didn't they say to John the Baptist, Are you a prophet? meaning one of the ordinary prophets, but the expression, are you the prophet, with the addition of the article, the word the, not are you a prophet, say are you, are you the prophet, he said, Chrysostom says that changes everything. He says because when they're saying are you the prophet, they're asking are you the prophet that Moses said was going to come. Moses talked about one specific prophet that was going to come in the future. Now there were dozens of prophets, but Moses talked specifically about one. And Chrysostom says John didn't deny that he was a prophet, he just denied that he was the prophet. So... Uh, Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I'm going to go back to the Septuagint here. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and read verses 15 to 19. Extremely important prophecy for us to understand. Uh, most Christians are not uh, really familiar with this prophecy. It's tremendously significant, particularly when reaching out to people from Muslim backgrounds. So, uh, background here, this is uh, Moses is speaking to the Jews before they are ready to go into the promised land. It's right before the death of Moses. So Deuteronomy is a retelling of the story and kind of last warnings from Moses before he dies. And Joshua takes over. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is Moses speaking. Him you shall hear according to all you ask from the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord our God, nor let us see this great fire anymore, lest we die. Then the Lord God's, then the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Therefore, whatever man will not listen, whatever the prophet speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So, now, every, every word, every phrase of this prophecy that I just read is of tremendous significance. Now, in Acts chapter 3, Peter makes the point that this prophet that Moses spoke about was Jesus. Stephen makes the same point in Acts chapter 7. So, continue the context, consider the context. Moses is recalling that God had given this direction to him almost 40 years earlier when the whole assembly was at Mount Sinai and God spoke to the people, gave them the Ten Commandments. 
He said, back on that day when the people said, that's enough, we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore, you go up and tell us what he says and we'll do whatever he says. So God gave the Ten Commandments, but Moses says there was one more commandment, which I would consider the Eleventh Commandment. The Eleventh Commandment is, the people said, we don't want to hear the voice of God. They gave the Ten Commandments, says, in the future I'll send a prophet like you. I'll raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren, and, and they must listen to what he says. Uh, now, keep in mind, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 17, he, Jesus says, I did not come. Don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill so I believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the 11th commandment. After God gave them the 10 commandments, there was one more command. I'm going to send a prophet. He'll say everything I want him to say, and they must do what he says. So he was fulfilling the law that was given to Moses back then. Which is why he had the ability to fill in more things that Moses didn't fill. When he teaches things like non-resistance, uh, when he teaches things like uh, uh, different, uh, uh, more stringent rules on divorce and remarriage, uh, and so forth and so on, about ch the changes, the dietary laws, Jesus could do that because God told Moses that after the Ten Commandments there would be further instruction coming from another, another great prophet. So reviewing this prophecy, Moses was told by God that there would be one specific prophet. Now there were many prophets that God sent. There were dozens of prophets in the scriptures. But there would be one prophet sent in the future that the prophet would come from among their brethren. Very significant. It's important to remember Moses is speaking to the Jews here. He's speaking to the Jewish nation. He's going to say he's going to be one of your brothers. The prophet would become, coming would be like Moses. And God says he would raise up that prophet. Let's take these things one by one. From among your brethren or from among your brothers. Now, the New Testament writers are reading from and quoting from the Septuagint, so I'll do the same thing here. The word brother it is exactly the same in English. It can mean all kinds of things depending on context. If you look at how this word is used throughout the scriptures, it says Cain talked with Abel, his brother. I mean, that's a, the most common meaning means uh, two children of the same parents. Uh, Laban says to Jacob in Genesis 29, because you're my brother, should you therefore serve me for nothing? That means he's not literally his, he means he's his relative. You're my brother. Uh, in Numbers 18 says, I took your brothers, the Levites, your brethren, the Levites, from the midst of the children of Israel. So the brothers are members of the same tribe. In Deuteronomy 15, 12, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you shall let them go. So their brother means any Jew. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Well, they're, you know, they're like cousins. They're not literally brothers. They're, they're, they're close. They're, there's a close connection there. They both go up through Isaac. 
Job, this is my favorite one, in Job chapter 30, he says, I have become a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Now, I think we understand from the context that brother there means he's, he's, an, he's hanging out with, he's a close associate of, all right? So the word brother, it's the same thing in English as in any of these other languages. The word brother can mean all kinds of things, depends on the context. So you've got to think... Who are you talking to and what are you talking about to understand what the word brother means? Because it means different things. It's a versatile word. So you can only look in the context. Now, I'll tell you what Muslims do with this passage here. They'll say, well, uh, he's from one of your brothers, well, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Jacob, but he was also the father of Ishmael, and Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Therefore, they're kind of brothers because they're sort of related through, through Abraham. The context of what, so you have, you have to, to, to take a look at this, you have to read it in context. Read the first 18 chapters of Deuteronomy and try to figure out who's Moses talking to, and when he uses the brother word brother there, what does he mean? In Deuteronomy chapter 1, as far as who Moses is talking to, let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now this this is a, a this is this may seem completely obvious to us, but if you ever get into a discussion with a Muslim, this is this is what they're going to say. Deuteronomy chapter one verse one. Now these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan and the de- desert in the plain opposite Suf between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, and the day of the first day of the month, Moses spoke to the sons of Israel according to all the Lord gave him as commandments to them. So who's Moses speaking to? Sons of Israel. He's speaking to the Jews. That's the group he's talking to. This is the context for the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 4, God reminds Moses reminds the Jews that they are the one and only nation to hear God's voice from Mount Sinai. They're the one nation that God brought out of Egypt from another nation with great signs and wonders. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God shows you to be a people for himself, special above all the nations on the face of the earth. And of course, that reminds us of what Peter said about the church that we are a holy nation, a separate people, called out of all the world. There are three commands that he says that retain, pertain to your brothers. One thing he says, don't intermarry. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4 says, don't intermarry with the other nations. You're my people, don't intermarry with the other nations. Another thing, in Deuteronomy 17, 15, he says, in the future, when you set up, when you seek a king, you set up a ruler above uh, to be over yourselves. He says in Deuteronomy seventeen fifteen, it must be one from among your brethren. You cannot set a foreigner over you because he is not your brother. That's when you set when you have a king. He must be one of your brothers, not a foreigner. <laughs> And then what we read earlier about Moses in Deuteronomy 18, God says that God would raise up a prophet from among your brothers. That's the next chapter here. 
So in the context, when he says, it must be one of your brothers from among your brothers, whether it's the future king or whether it's the prophet, what is he talking about? It's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 11 where it talks about Solomon and the trouble that he got into of violating right what it says right here in Deuteronomy. It says in, uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from all the nations whom the Lord said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So, the thing I want to point out there is he mentions the Edomites in there. Some of your translations say the Idumeans. These are people who were descended from Esau. They are considered to be foreigners. They're basically cousins of the Jews. And he says they're foreigners. They're not part of your people. They're not part of your nation. And that's why you're in trouble, because the descendants of Esau are not Israelites. They're not of Israel. If the descendants of Esau are considered foreigners, what does that say about the descendants of Ishmael, who are even more removed? This is comparing cousins to second cousins, and actually they're even half cousins, okay? So the idea that God, God views the, the Edomites as foreigners, he certainly would review the Ishmaelites as foreigners as well, from whom, um, from whom the descent of, uh, of the Arabs and Muhammad comes. So I would ask Jews when they, when they would say to me, well, uh, Muhammad is the prophet that's talked about in Deuteronomy 18. I said, well, that's very interesting. You mean to tell me that Muhammad is a Jew? And they would be extremely offended by that comment. I said, well, it says it right here. Either he's a Jew or he's disqualified and he can't be the person that they're talking about here. So he had to be from among your brothers, which disqualifies all the Arabs. I think actually disqualifies everybody in this room because none of us are Jewish right here. So he had to be a Jew. That's the first thing. Second thing is it said the prophet would be like Moses. Well, the parallels between Moses and Jesus, if you study the life of Moses, are overwhelming. I'm going to just throw out a few of the obvious ones. God sent them to save his people and to deliver them from bondage. They brought in a new covenant. At his birth, a wicked king issued an edict to kill all the infant boys in the area where he was. However, he managed to escape. He spent his childhood in Egypt, part of his childhood. His first public miracle with Moses is changing the water into blood. Jesus' first public miracle in John chapter 2 was changing the water into wine at Cana. Both of them fed thousands of people with bread from heaven. Both of them had power over the sea. Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus calmed the storm and walked on water. They both met God on the mountain. 
both had a radiant face after being in the presence of God, Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration. After their death, their followers couldn't find the dead body. And both of them expressed a deep concern. Moses in Numbers 27, 17, and Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, that God's people not be left like sheep without a shepherd. Now those are just ten examples, those are just ten obvious ones that are, you know, these, these are unusual things that line up between the two of them. Uh, Elizabeth was at a class that we they had uh, Society for the Two Tasks where um, I, I really didn't even teach the class. I said, here, let's break up the life of Moses, break up into groups, you study the life of Moses, and you come back and tell me after about half an hour what you saw that lines up with, and uh, these are unusual things, not like he got up in the morning and he had wine to drink, but something that's really unusual about the life of Jesus and the life of Moses. And the, the person who was moderating was very skeptical about this, but when we hit number 20 and heading on to number 30 in the list of unusual parallels, he, was, he threw in the towel and was completely won over. So uh, uh, and, and these I asked them to tell me the things that they saw. This wasn't me telling them. So it's overwhelming. If you compare the life of Jesus and the life of Moses, which is why God said, I will send a prophet like you from among their brothers. How do you know which prophet it is? You look at the life of Moses, and then you look at the life of Jesus. And then the last thing, which I missed for years, God says in the future, I will raise up a prophet and I always took that figuratively. I always thought, well, he's going to raise up a prophet. He raises up kings. Churches like to raise up leaders. Peter says no. In Acts chapter 3, he says no. God said he would raise up a prophet when he's explaining. He quotes this prophecy, and Peter says, and he did. He just rose him up exactly like he said he would. That he literally raised him up from the dead. Uh, I had missed that for years, but it's right in Acts chapter 3. That's the point of what Peter's making. So the conclusion regarding the question John has asked, are you the prophet? John could say, no, I'm not the prophet. There's someone else who is the prophet, and that was Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that would made to Moses, what I would consider the 11th commandment. It's Jesus who is the prophet, not Muhammad. First of all, Muhammad was not of Jewish descent, so he is disqualified right off the bat. Second, if we compare the life of Jesus and the life of Muhammad to the life of Moses, there's no question that Jesus is the one who, who lines up from beginning to end as one who came in the pattern that Moses had established more than any other prophet who's lived. And then the final proof God said he would raise him up, and literally, he did raise him up. So there's no question that this is the prophet that God spoke about. And I want to encourage everyone. There are so many aspects of Jesus to appreciate. He is the king over the kingdom of God. As it says throughout the Gospels, he is the king, he is the Christ the king. He is the high priest of God who offers the perfect sacrifice. He is the good shepherd. But in addition to all things, Jesus was the greatest prophet of all time. 
He was the ultimate prophet, not Muhammad. He's the one that God speaks through like no one else. He called people to repent like no one else, and he warned us about the coming judgment like no one else. He is the greatest prophet of all time. Jesus is the prophet. Amen. Amen.